Read with me from Mark chapter 15, first verses 1 through 5, and then we'll continue in verse 16. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council, and they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priest accused him of many things. And Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they bring against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. And continuing in verse 16, And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is, the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him, and the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, Leme sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are at a tough passage this morning. This is a tough one to preach on. Um, on Friday night, at our Good Friday service, we're just going to listen to it. 
We're just going to read it. We're going to contemplate it. Maybe cry about it. I think that may be the best way to deal with this text. I hope you'll consider coming to those things. Uh, Thursday at 6.30, we're going to do a free-flowing worship with uh, a short homily and communion. And then Friday, we're going to do our Tenebrae service where we're just reading through it. We're, we're making child care available. We never do nighttime stuff. <laughs> so I, I just want to encourage you, make this a priority. This is a week that you should prioritize contemplating the passion of Christ. Um, these are important days in the church. And today, this day, this Sunday is also an important day. This happens to be uh, Palm Sunday. And Palm Sunday is traditionally the day when we remember Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. That's why we had the kids sing that song and read that text. It was the day when he first arrived into the city as a king. People celebrated him. They were rejoicing. They were shouting. And here we are at a much bleaker text. The story of the crucifixion. But I think it's equally appropriate. It might even be more appropriate for us to read on uh, Palm Sunday than the one we've already read. Um, in Mark's gospel, the word king doesn't show up until these texts. The word king doesn't show up until these verses at the very end of his book. And it comes up over and over and over again. Did you hear it when Melissa was reading? At his trial, they call him king. When they have the decision to release Barabbas instead of Jesus, they, they say that he's the king of the Jews. When they are mocking him, when they are flogging him, and even as he is dying over and over again, they call him the king. And so today, as we study this important passage on the death of Christ, I want us to look at Jesus as Mark presents him. I want us to look at Jesus as the king. And so there's three things I want us to see here. I want us to see first the declaration of the king, then the reception of the king, and finally the victory of the king. So that's what we're doing, the declaration of the king, the reception of the king, and the victory of the king. So let's talk about the declaration of the king. What exactly do I mean by that? Uh, we've been studying Mark for a while, you might recall. We, we started this round in January, and we've preached it all the way up until next week for Easter. And then we also preached it last year from January up until Easter. And you might remember, as we've read through all of those texts, that one of the main themes that comes up over and over and over and over in Mark is this theme of secrecy, this messianic secret, especially in the first half of the book. Whenever something big was realized about Jesus, Whenever somebody would start to get an inkling of who he really was, Jesus would respond by telling people to quiet down, to calm down. Do you remember that? In, in Mark chapter 1, it says, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself the cleansing that Moses commanded. Or Mark chapter 5, after one of his healings, he says... And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And then he told to give something to eat. Or probably most famously, what we preached near last Easter was when uh, Peter finally realizes who Jesus was. He says, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, you are the Christ. And Jesus strictly 
charged them to tell no one about him. So over and over again, Jesus is saying, keep my identity a secret. Don't tell anyone who I really am. But now, finally, in these last couple of pages, all of the secrecy is gone. In chapter 14, we see the trial of Jesus. And Mark tells us that during that trial, person after person comes forward to Jesus. And it says they're bringing all kinds of false accusations against him. It says many bore false witnesses against him, but their testimony did not agree. So person after person trying to come up with some charge that they might be able to trap Jesus and catch him. But finally, the high priest approaches him and he says, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? And Jesus says, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is a big moment. All of a sudden, Jesus is willing to state who he is. In fact, his, his response to this priest is like, why, have, why didn't you just ask me? Why bother bringing up all of these false accusations? I will tell you who I am, and you can convict me on those grounds. In, in the comic book world, this is the difference between Superman and Iron Man. Do you know this? We got a lot of superhero fans here. Superman, right, he's always hiding who he really is. And, and somehow people are fooled by the glasses or whatever. But nobody knows what his identity is. Iron Man, on the other hand, kind of the big point of that movie, the first one, is that he brazenly lets people know that he is Iron Man and he's going to deal with all the fallout from that fact. He's going to let people know who he is, and that kind of impacts how, what he's like as a hero. Now, I realize this isn't like the greatest illustration here. I don't like comparing Jesus to superheroes too often. My own son has a very difficult time distinguishing. I often have to answer questions like, who's faster, Superman or Jesus? And I'm like... <laughs> so I, I, I recognize this isn't the best, the best, the best illustration, but, it, but the, the point is that Jesus isn't trying to hide Jesus is, is bold here with this declaration. He is no longer concerned with hiding his own identity. And the leaders of the Sanhedrin, these Jewish leaders, are beside themselves. Tells us the high priest, he tears his robe open. And they convict him immediately of blasphemy. Never even considering for a moment that Jesus might be telling the truth. And they send him to Pilate. But of course, they can't send him to the Roman government on the charge of religious blasphemy. That would never fly. So they translate the charge into Gentile terms. They translate the term into non-Jewish, non-religious terms. And they say that this man claims to be the king of Israel. Now, Pilate, if you remember from history, Pilate was the prefect of Judea. That means that he was the, the, the chief representative of the Roman government. He was the one who was really in charge. He was the one who got to call all the shots. Religious leaders, like these chief priests and these scribes, they had authority in society, but they couldn't pass a death sentence. They, had, they did not have the authority to carry out the sentence for blasphemy. Only Pilate had that. So they send Jesus as this political rebel. 
They say that he is someone who has claimed to be a king apart from the authority of Rome. And you should know, all of us should know, that Pilate was a notoriously cruel human being. He was known throughout history, not just in the Bible, but in other history books. You can read about how awful of a person Pilate was. He despised the Jewish people. He tormented the Jewish people. And you can even read that as you're, if you go back and read through this this week, you can tell Pilate is antagonizing these people as he's dealing with Jesus and as he's facing the crowds. He does not want to do their bidding. He's no fool. He sees through the fact that these people who are genuinely opposed to Rome are now very concerned about traitors. They bring them this guy claiming to be the king and, and he recognizes that they don't care that he's against the Roman government. They're against the Roman government. So despite how you may have seen this though, despite the way you may have seen Pilate portrayed in a movie, for instance, he is not a pious man. He's certainly not a pious man when he is dealing with Jesus. He is not powerless against the crowds. He is not weak. He's antagonizing them. He's taunting them. And in the end, it is Pilate, his authority, that sends Jesus to his death. He's the one that signs off. But what's the charge? Well, look with me at your Bibles. It's verse 2 of chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, uh, take one of these paperback Bibles in your seat. Take it home with you. We want everybody to have a copy of the Word of God. That's our gift to you. Um, but open it up and look at Mark chapter 15, verse 2. It says, And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. And the chief priests accused him of many things. And Pilate asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how they bring charges against you. But Jesus made no further answer, so that Pilate was amazed. When Jesus was on trial for his life, he made no effort to deny who he was. He didn't try to explain the details of how this was all going to work out. He just openly admits the fact that, yes, it's true. It is as you say, I am the king. And it tells us Pilate's amazed by that. I don't think we are supposed to read that Pilate is in awe of Jesus. I think it's, it means he's perplexed. Pilate is confused. This, this man is making no defense for his life. He recognizes when Jesus says it, he says, yes, it is as you say, but it's not a forceful claim. He's not like, you're, you're absolutely right, I'm the king, and I'm going to take you down. That's not what he says. It's not defiant. His demeanor was calm, not angry, not defensive. Pilate could tell that even though Jesus said yes, he was not a political threat. And that's because we know this, right? We, we know from our perspective that when Jesus says that he's the king, he means something entirely different, right? When Jesus says, yes, I am the king, what he is, has in mind is something completely different from what Pilate has in mind. He says, yes, I am the king, but he is saying that he intends to claim his people for himself and not to rule over them, 
uh, in that country, but to rule over their hearts. He intends to defend his people like a king, but not against political enemies, not against the attacks of other nations, but against temptation. And he wants to deliver them from sin. His intention as a king is to restrain and conquer his enemies. But that means he's going to restrain and conquer Satan. And he's going to conquer the greatest enemy of all. Death. And one day, Jesus, as the king, after he has saved every last one of his people, then he will come in divine justice. Then he will come and he will call all evil into account. He will call all wickedness into account. He will destroy all injustice and inequality, all depravity and sickness. He will wipe out poverty. He will wipe out division. He will restore peace and righteousness and holiness. And he will make the world, the entire world, the way that it's supposed to be. When Jesus says he's the king, he means that he rules over all of creation. And he's going to claim his people for himself. He's going to bind and conquer all of his enemies and all of our enemies. And together, he is going to bring us into the eternal and glorious presence of God. That's Jesus' declaration. That's what he says when he says he's the king. That's how it was then. And that's how it is now. So the next thing we need to think about is how do we respond to that claim? How do we receive the king? As we read through this chapter... um, the cruelty is kind of hard to reckon with. I've heard a lot of sermons preached on the crucifixion. If you've been in the church, maybe you've heard a few of them as well. Um, and I've heard a certain kind of sermon on the crucifixion where they, the pastor really hones in on how painful and gruesome and awful a crucifixion is. How terrible flogging and flagellation is with your a whip being uh, someone being whipped and their skin being torn off and uh, nails being driven through their hands and and feet and and maybe you've heard that that sermon too. I think that that's not inappropriate, honestly. I don't think that that's a wrong way for us to go here. There is a place for that kind of reflection on Christ's suffering and his pain. However, the details of the crucifixion are not Mark's focus here. The details of the crucifixion is really not the point Mark wants us to see. Crucifixion was not unique to Jesus. Even in this passage, he is not the only one being crucified. On the page, here's what Mark says about the crucifixion. Verse 24. And they crucified him And they divided his garments among them. That's it. Instead, where Mark over and over again is pointing us, 
Where Mark is trying to put our attention in this passage is he wants us to see the mockery that's going on as this takes place. He wants us to see how everyone present at that scene is actively mocking Jesus. Pilate starts it, right? Pilate mocks him to his face when he says, are you the king of the Jews? And then it continues with the soldiers. In verse 17, it says, as soon as Jesus is beaten, as soon as he is bloody, as soon as he has been utterly uh, abused and humiliated, they clothed him with a purple cloak and they twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on him and they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and they were spitting on him and they were kneeling down in homage to him. The cruelty of that takes your breath away. Imagining anyone being treated that way. Anyone, even if he had been guilty of treason, even if this was the most wicked of men, to see someone treated that way is, is horrific to think about. But this is the Lord. He is who he claimed to be. He named himself clearly. He said, I am the king. And they beat him. They laughed at him. They mocked him. They spat in his face. And it doesn't end there. As he is crucified, the crowds continue to mock him. They mock him with the inscription by the cross that, that sarcastically says, King of the Jews. Verse 29, it says, those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, ha, you who saved, uh, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. The passers-by, then the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him to each other saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. Mark goes on to say that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And you. And I. That's the point. That's the point Mark's trying to make. It's you and me right there with them. The whole world mocks Christ as he's crucified. The whole world mocks Christ the King. Jesus' claim to the throne, it still provokes the disdain and the disgust of the world. Amen? We want that Palm Sunday King. We want the triumphant King. We want the King who comes with fanfare and celebration that everybody can get behind. Not the Good Friday King. We want the celebrations. We want the crowd. We want the hope of glory. But Jesus is showing us here that his kingdom is not glorious the way we want it to be. 
His kingdom is not beautiful and attractive to the world. We see at this moment as Jesus is beaten and bloodied and battered and hanging on the cross, we see the literal representation of what he said throughout his whole ministry, that those who are called to his kingdom are called to come and die. That means if Christ is your king, you are a woman who has forfeit her life. If Christ is your king, you are a man who has forfeit his life. You have been called out of this world, out of its values, out of its hopes, and into an entirely different paradigm. You have been called to holiness. You have been called to live for God's glory. You have been called to die to your lusts, To die to your desire for money and power and sex and glory and fame and and whatever other temporary and fleeting thing you think is going to make you happy. Instead, you have been called to be satisfied through an eternal relationship with the everlasting God. You have been called to live for eternity. Not for today. And we don't like that. Let's be honest. We do not like that. We hate this kind of claim. In the past couple of years, I've noticed um, that most of us are, are filling ourselves with a steady diet of mockery lately. I was listening to uh, an interview last week with Jimmy Kimmel, one of the late night hosts. Uh, He was just talking about how things have changed on his show in the last couple of years. Um, He said it used to be the case that they would occasionally kind of make political jokes and stuff like that uh, during the Obama administration or the Bush administration before that. Once every month or something like that, there would be something silly that, that they needed to skewer. But he was saying that now, it's every night. Because people are so obsessed with that, the way, what's going on in the world. He says every, that, that now, with, with Trump in office, mockery has kind of become our coping mechanism, right? When we have a leader that 70% of us uh, don't like, mockery has become the way we deal with a leader that we don't, we don't appreciate, that we have a difficult time accepting. And maybe that makes sense, I don't know. Uh, I certainly watch those shows. I enjoy, uh, I enjoy the humor most of the time. Um, it makes sense when you're dealing with someone you don't like. It makes sense when you're dealing with uh, a leader that a lot of people think is a scoundrel. But, but how does it explain our response to Jesus? How do we explain this? How do we explain not just the joking mockery, but an unbridled kind of hatred. This absolute humiliation. This cruel, unrelenting brutality. Well, the answer is, when it comes to God, our problems are much deeper than politics. 
When it comes to God, our problem goes all the way down to the center of who we are. Here's how Romans describes every one of us. It says, Romans chapter 1, verse 30, that all of us, every single one of us, we are filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. We are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. We are gossips, slanderers, and hear this, everybody, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to our parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. And though we know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, we not only do them, but we give approval to those who practice them. Jeremiah, he says that our hearts are deceitful above all things and desperately sick. We are all the king's enemies. All of us. That's what Mark wants us to see as we read this chapter. We did not sit by passively and watch while Jesus went to die. While he was crucified, we mocked him. We did it. And we know that because the mockery didn't stop at Golgotha. We still see it every single day. This mockery continues every single day as we laugh and diminish the word of God in our culture. As we humiliate people who take his word seriously. Who would dare to defer to the unchanging eternal standards of God instead of living by the ever-changing whims of modern society. And in case you Christians in the room are thinking, you're, you're feeling a little self-righteous right now. In case you're thinking, I'm only talking about people out there who do that. Let me tell you that there are no more guilty mockers of God than the church. Where the world dismisses his claims. Where the world acts like his claims don't exist. The church, we pay lip service to it. We say that we believe this stuff. We say that our lives are in submission and surrender to him. But we turn away from him. We live our lives the way we would live them anyway. We live without fear. We presume upon God's grace and forgiveness. You know, in England, the queen has no power, but at least they give her a mansion, right? At least they give her lots of money and jewels and things. But we, we just give Christ the kingship in name only. We dress him up in a purple robe. And we put a crown on his head and we sing songs to him. But in our hearts and with our lives, we mock him. That is our reception of the king. None of us escapes that. But lest we leave here in despair, I want to talk about the victory of the king. You know, this scene is really pitiful. This is a scene of weakness. It's hard to look at. It is the embodiment of Isaiah 53. 
That famous passage where it says that, that he had no beauty that we should desire him. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces. Man, I, I read this and I want to hide my face. I read this and, and I feel that, that shame. I read this and I, I want to look away. But I want to say, don't do that. You can't do that. You cannot look away from the cross. Because you know this. This is not a moment of defeat. Right? This is not a moment of defeat. In verse 31, those last cruel words that the the chief priests say. It says, he saved others. He cannot save himself. Remember they said that? He saved others. He cannot save himself. You know, they said that to be cruel. But do you realize that was a a prophetic moment? They were speaking truth when those words came out of their mouths. He could not save himself. Not because he was incapable. If Christ had wanted to, he easily could have. No. He couldn't save himself Because even at this moment, as the world was mocking him, he was loving them. He was suffering for them. Even as they were murdering him with their hands and in their hearts, do you realize that Christ the King was ruling them? He was conquering them. Not through violence. Not through force. Not with an iron fist. But he was conquering through his death. This is the moment right here. It tells us that at noon that day, as Jesus hung on the cross, the sky went black for three hours. It was not an eclipse. It was not a sandstorm. This was a miraculous thing. And let me just say, as an aside, if you have trouble accepting that a miraculous thing like this could happen, you're really not going to like next week. (laughs) In this moment, the sky went dark. Jesus writhed in pain for three hours. People watched him by torchlight. And at the end, he cried out. The eternal son of God, who had been forever connected, forever united to the eternal father, to the Holy Spirit, he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quoted Psalm 22, but do you know why he said those words? Well, I want you to see that is the fate of those who mock God. That is the fate of everyone who refuses to bow their knee before Christ the King. They will be cut off. 
They will be cast out. But in this moment, Jesus took that penalty for you. He took that penalty for everyone who would turn to him in faith. He was the king. And in the moment that that looked like the greatest defeat that the universe had ever seen, he was conquering his enemies and yours. He was taking our punishment through his death. He conquered death. Through his death, he conquered our hearts. He was cut off. He was forsaken by God so that you and I could be brought in. And folks, when God shows you that, it changes you. Look at the last scene. Look at this last image that Mark left us with. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. This same man, the man who had been present through all of Christ's suffering, who had surely participated in the mockery, who had probably participated in dressing him up and and giving him false praises, who had openly mocked him, now sees him and stands astonished and amazed. And today, that's that's what I want to leave you with as we're about to head out. The cross shows us that this king will accomplish the purposes he came for. Wherever you stand, however far off, even in open mockery, if you belong to him, he will have you. And so I want to say today, if you are on the run from him, you might as well stop. Because he's not going to. If you belong to him, you will be his. Amen. And I also want to say, if you resonate with this today, if you hear these voices around the cross, if you're reminded of that hymn that says, ashamed I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. Know this. Christ came for the mockers. He died for them. And through the power of his Holy Spirit, he transforms them. He transforms you and me into men and women who no longer mock him, but worship the living God in spirit and in truth. Hallelujah. If you see that Jesus this morning, I just want to invite you to let his glory shut your mouth. And let his spirit transform your hearts. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this brutal and terrifying scene. And I pray that as we take time in it this week to really look at it and feel it and recognize that it was not done far away, but it was done for us. Lord, would you change us? Would you transform us? Would you move in our hearts? We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Can we stand